Thanks for tuning in to Jin and Tantra. As always, please like, subscribe, and share. In this episode, we had the absolute pleasure of interviewing one of our favorite authors and researchers, Dr. Dean Radin. Dean Radin is an MS, PhD, and a chief scientist at the Institute of Noetic Sciences and an associated distinguished professor at the California Institute of Integral Studies. He earned a BS and an MS in electrical engineering, as well as a PhD in psychology from the University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign. Before joining the Institute of Noetic Sciences research staff in 2001, Dean Radin worked at AT&T Bell Labs, Princeton University, the University of Edinburgh, and SRI International. He has given over 600 talks and interviews worldwide. He is the author or co-author of over 300 scientific and popular articles, four dozen book chapters and forewords, two technical books, and four popular books that are translated into 15 foreign languages, The Conscious Universe, Entangled Minds, Supernormal, and Real Magic, which we will discuss today. This is the second part of our interview with Dean Radin, PhD. We asked him about his research in telepathy, clairvoyance, precognition, and psychokinesis, and how science is proving the existence of these phenomenon and so much more. We also go over the double slit experiment, observations on the force of will, scientific resistance, and the profound effects of subjectivity. We also discuss materialism and how it is not the only worldview, as well as the religiosity of science. Enjoy the episode. Welcome to Jen and Tantra, spirituality with a twist. The podcast that takes Tantrism, Buddhism, Taoism, Sufism, Kabbalism, Shamanism, Chinese medicineism, <laughs> and all of the other isms we've been influenced by, and blends them into a tall, crisp, cool cocktail. Your spirit has been longing for. Now, isn't that refreshing? I want you to get together. Um, I guess the other part would be just maybe to ask you to go through, you know, we, we looked at real magic as kind of the basis for this. And you've already kind of brought up, I think, what is the principal idea, which is that you can talk about magic, but you can also talk about the results of the work that you've been doing. Right. And they're kind of, they're parallel. They're kind of supporting and seem to illustrate similar phenomenon. So I thought we'd ask you just to talk about maybe what might be some of your favorite examples of some of the studies that you're familiar with. Uh, our, our choices were the double slit <laughs> and the human mind affecting the double slit. Uh, we thought the Trump one on the random number generators was really fascinating. And I thought the voodoo one was interesting, but whichever ones you want to choose <laughs> from those, but those are some of our favorites. So right. I don't know whichever ones you want to talk about, but we, thought, we all thought those three were great. Well, so the, the, the point of that discussion was that uh, within the discipline of parapsychology, which is not ghost busting, but doing research in a laboratory, uh, there's four categories of, kind of studies that, that we can do. And they're taking experiences that are called psychic and figuring out a way of rigorously testing them in the lab. So people report things that we call telepathy that's easily studied in the laboratory. 
and they report clairvoyance and precognition and various kinds of psychokinetic effects. So the, the range of what people report uh, is pretty broad, but you can still narrow it down. So if you wanna study something like precognition, there's a half a dozen methods that can be used. Uh, so one of the ways that we then say, well, okay, if, if in magical practice, the idea is that doing certain uh, kinds of practices, you can guess what the future will be, fortune telling essentially. So is that a real thing? Well, it turns out there's a hundred years of experiments testing that very concept. Is it a real thing? When you bring this into the laboratory, you have to make an artificial construct in order to capture it. And so you're, you're kind of squishing real life into, uh, into an experiment that has to be done right now under conditions that we define on demand. And so it's not surprising that the effects that we see generally are a lot smaller than what people describe in everyday life. But nevertheless, we have very high confidence that if we see something interesting, that it's probably real. And we can assess probabilities to it. So one of the experiments that I, I did was it, not exactly based on this anecdote, but, but similar kinds of anecdotes. So a friend of mine, uh, like to go hunting with his friends. And so they all had guns and they would clean the guns before they went out hunting. And one of his guns was a six shot double action revolver. That means that you, you pull the trigger and the cylinder revolves and then the hammer's pulled back and then the hammer hits the next chamber. And so it's all done, it's double action because two things happen and it's all one smooth mo movement. So there were six bullets in it, but he only kept five. So the hammer would be over the empty chamber for safety's sake. And he takes all the bullets out, he cleans the gun, he's putting the bullets back in, one, two, three, four. And then when he picked up the fifth bullet to put it back in, he got a really bad feeling. It had no cognition to it, just he had a bad feeling that this bullet was wrong somehow. So he set it aside. So now, now the hammer's over the sixth chamber, which is empty, and the fifth one is empty too. So two weeks go by, he and his friends go out, hunting, he, he put in there some kind of a cabin. They come back from hunting and they start drinking heavily, which is not a good idea when you have a lot of guns around. Two of his friends get into an argument. Uh, he tries to intervene between them to prevent them from hitting each other. But unfortunately, his gun is within reach. His revolver is within reach of one of the people who's getting quite angry. And he picks it up and is pointing it straight at his, at his friend. And again, he gets between the two but it's too late because the other, the friend was already pulling the trigger. He saw the cylinder revolve and the hammer went click. It went click into that fifth chamber where he took out the bullet. Wow. So at that moment, he, he had a, this shock of recognition that that bullet, which he took out, would have killed him, would have been shot right in the face. And it was related then to this sinking feeling you could imagine that you get when, holy crap, if I didn't do this, if I didn't feel this somehow two weeks ago, I would be dead. And there are many, many variations on these kinds of feelings. So I called it presentiment because it wasn't a cognition, it was a pre-feeling. And we devised an experiment in the laboratory where you would take somebody, sit them in front of a computer screen and then wire them up to measure things like skin conductance and heart rate and pupil dilation and lots of other physiological measures all of which are related to what, what's happening in your nervous system or your viscera. And we, we can measure visceral sensations that way. And so 
you would then see a sequence of randomly selected pictures, some of which would have very emotional content and some would have very calm content. And the hypothesis was that just before you see an emotional picture that your body would begin to register a presentiment. It would show that you're gearing up to respond to an emotion. And just before seeing a calm picture, your body would remain calm because your future was not gonna be scary. So that was the design. We did those experiments. We got very clear evidence that this is in fact what happens. Um, for skin conductance, for example, it, it usually takes two to three seconds after you see a picture to have this response. But beforehand, two to three seconds before seeing an emotional picture, you'd begin to become emotionally aroused. And of course, you have no idea what, it, what the picture is going to be, and nor does the experimenter because it's selected at random. So I presented this first, we, we did it in 1995, I presented it in 96, and uh, colleagues began to replicate it. And as of today, there's something like 48 replications by colleagues around the world. And it's very clear that it's, it's a real effect. What makes it even more interesting is that the method that I just described is in a sense, very standard psychophysiology research. Like thousands of studies are being done where we wanna see how does the body respond to a stimulus, which is always about looking at what happens afterwards with the assumption that nothing happens before. So there's a lot of databases out there where you, you can get the data. And instead of looking at what happens afterwards, well, you go backwards in time and say, well, did, did they respond beforehand? It turns out on the, case, on the databases we were able to get a hold of, my colleagues did this, uh, it turns out sure enough, before emotional stimuli, even in data that was selected, that was generated for other purposes, you still see this presentiment effect. So as often happens with these psychic uh, phenomena, we're saturated with them. They're always here, but we don't generally pay attention to it. So, so what I think I remember about that one too, Dr. Radin, was I think there was a gender difference in that too, where yes. you know, female subjects, if the material was either kind of more violent or more sexual, they would sort of anticipate that. Where in the male subjects, there was a little bit more of an anticipatory quality, I think, for the things that were sexual, if I'm remembering it correctly. <laughs> yes, there, there are idiosyncratic responses from one person to the next, and there are uh, gender differences or sex differences. Uh, it makes these kinds of experiments more tricky to do because some women, for example, will respond backwards as compared to how men respond. So uh, men are excited by things like explosions and military looking stuff in general, and women are not, or, or worse, they kind of go in the other direction. And you can see that physiologically. So if, if a man is about to see something that's like a, a giant explosion, they're gonna get all excited and you can see that as a sympathetic arousal and his heart rate changes and so on. A woman might have exactly the opposite result. They, they may become extremely calm just before something that a man would find extremely interesting or stimulating. So, uh, so that if once you know that, you can adjust the data accordingly. You take a bunch of demographics and physiological uh, surveys beforehand to see how, how would you likely respond to these kinds of emotions. Once you know that, then you can say, okay, for this person, we have to reverse the data because they're, they're coming from a very different perspective. And you, you do that in many of these experiments. You find that there are uh, personality and biological differences, sometimes environmental differences, whether they're a meditator or not, 
lots and lots of variables change the way that people have these kinds of experiences. And you see that in the laboratory. So do you get some outliers based on that you, you have to look and say, there's probably something in this person's personal experience, which is making them respond particularly strongly to this thing. And that almost becomes statistically complicated. Is that like a common experience? Yes, there are idiosyncratic differences where if somebody was a child and they were bitten by a bunny, and when they see a picture of a bunny, they're gonna have a very different reaction than somebody who expects that a bunny would give a nice warm feeling. Well, no, they're gonna have a, a freak out experience. So that adds noise to the experiment. And you, you don't know that in advance until you do a, a, a pretest or multiple pretests to find out how people respond to these pictures. The problem is you, you don't wanna show them all of the pictures because then they're gonna have a reduced response to it. So the, like in any experiment, you deal with lots and lots of repeated trials and lots of repeated people and rest on the average. And fortunately, the average is good enough so that, that you can see results even with unselected people and you, haven't, you don't even know anything about them. Oh, as long, okay, yeah, that makes sense. As long as it's randomized out, you probably can like get rid of some of that noise. Yeah, you just, yeah. you just have noise from one person to the next. Yeah. Well, I guess I have to ask, because that was more precognition. I guess the double slit one is kind of like a telekinesis or something, how the mind can affect the external world. Right, um, that, would, that would be a kind of force of will where you're pushing around photons. Yeah, so I mean, I just taught a class for, um, you know, one of the programs I teach in on kind of physics and quantum mechanics for <laughs> traditional Chinese medical people. Mm -hmm. I promised I was going to ask about this one because the double slit is just such an important experiment. It's like, if you know the physics at all, it's like the quintessential sort of experiment that leads to Schrodinger's equation and this whole world opens up and it really has to do with wave particle duality. Right. And under certain situations, uh, things will behave as particles and other situations they'll behave as waves. But what you kind of, what you found is that you can make people meditate on the experimental design and you can help trigger that, make things behave evil, either as particles or waves, depending on how you make the meditator, meditator concentrate or whoever the person is concentrating. That's kind of the, 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 the gist of it, right? <laughs> You'll do a better job explaining than me, I'm sure. Well, yeah. And, and so the motivation for this is if you go back and look at what the founders of quantum mechanics up to about the 1950s were saying about this, because they realized that this, is, this kind of physics is very different than classical physics uh, for a number of reasons. But one of those reasons was that in classical mechanics, when you observe something or measure it, there, you don't, there's no assumption that you're going to change the system. The system is what it is. In quantum mechanics, there's no longer true. And so some people think that, well, the reason why measurement in quantum mechanics is so difficult or that it changes the nature of the system is because in order to measure how a photon is behaving, you need to interact with it and the interaction changes it. That is not the case. People believe that, but it's not true. You can measure things without touching it at all. And, and it's called uh, interaction-free uh, versions of, of quantum mechanics. Um, like the, the, the bomb detector, you can tell whether something is a bomb or not without sending any photons at it at all. So it has to do with some peculiar thing about gaining information out of the system. So in a double slit system, you send a photon at two slits, uh, it either, uh, it goes through one or the other. And if, you're, if you know which of the two slits it goes through, you see a particulate pattern. And if you don't know which of the two slits, you get an interference pattern. So something, something then about the, the nature of what you know about the behavior of the photons is causing it to behave wave-like or particle-like. 
So that's, that's a mystery. You don't see that in classical mechanics. So we followed a suggestion of John von Neumann, who even his contemporaries were saying, this is the smartest person I've ever met. Yeah, John so, von Neumann, yeah. Yeah, so, so von Neumann was analyzing then, well, how do we get from this strange quantum potential states into the actual world that we measure? Because we don't see wave-like things in, in particles, we, we see particles and yet they have this, this behavior. So how does it get from one to the other? So he proposed that there was a multi-stage process. One of those processes was that when you were conscious, when consciousness knew or gained information about, the, about a, a quantum potential, that that's what caused the transformation as part of his two process system. Okay, well, that's a testable idea. So you could do it in several ways. You could have somebody look at photons, which is not so easy. I mean, you, you really, you could, you, you could make the eye photon sensitive. The eye can see about seven photons in a, in a row, uh, but you have to be completely dark adapted. It's not clear how you would do that in the context of a double slit experiment. So we said, we'll take, we'll take a slightly different approach and we'll assume that, that clairvoyance is a real thing. So with clairvoyance, you have what amounts to the mind's eye, which presumably can see anything, anywhere. Not, on, not only in distant in space, but distant in time. So we figured, okay, we'll do the clairvoyance distant in space. We'll have a sealed double slit system. We'll ask somebody to use their mind's eye to simply imagine that they could see what, where the photons were going. Is it this slit or that slit? Well, some people can do that. Other people found it very difficult to maintain that kind of imagination. So we said, okay, if you can't do that, imagine you could push the photon. So it goes through the left slit or the right slit. It's more like a psychokinetic effect. All of it is still mental. You're doing something with your mind to muck about with what the photons are doing. Anything you can do to that photon will cause the interference pattern to slightly collapse. It'll be more particulate light like. So we have a camera that's looking at the, at the pattern that is being produced by the photons. Uh, we've done experiments with single photons with uh, gas lasers, with continuous photons, with diode lasers, all kinds of different things. But the concept was always the same, that we're measuring, is there a change in the interference pattern when somebody is focusing their mind on that system as compared to when they're not focusing their mind? And the short answer is yes, there is a difference. It's really small in terms of, of magnitude, but because you can run lots of people and lots of trials, you can end up with a statistical estimate of whether or not this is a real effect. So I'm convinced that it is a real effect. It's a tiny little effect, but it's real. It is uh, better typically in meditators uh, because meditators can follow instructions, right? These are mental instructions to do something in your head having to do with your attention goes. And meditation is all about attention training. Whereas if you're Joe Sixpack and never have meditated, it's very difficult to maintain focus for more than around three seconds. And then you're thinking about something else. So these experiments are relatively straightforward. There's only been one person who has tried to independently replicate it uh, in his pilot studies. This by the way, is a physicist who is at CERN uh, oh, in, okay. in uh, Switzerland. And he, he heard, he read about the, our studies with the double set and he decided that was way more interesting than trying to find the Higgs boson. <laughs> so he came and visited our lab for a month, learned what we did, went back to his um, lab, which was at the University of Sao Paulo in Brazil. 
And he, he set it up from scratch, ran it, did something like nine pilot studies, getting whoppingly big results, and then set up to do three formal studies. Well, the formal studies did not replicate what he found in the pilots. In the pilots, he was finding that uh, you could predict in advance what would happen to the interference pattern, like it would collapse in a certain direction. In the formal studies, he didn't find that. Sometimes it went one way and sometimes it went another way. So from a statistical perspective, he found differences, but in both directions. So it's a, a, a bimodal hypothesis rather than a directional hypothesis. So this is not that great when you do a formal hypothesis because you have to say in advance what you expect to get. Yeah. So he didn't get what he expected. He got a, a, a bi-directional significant effect. So we were talking about that and I mentioned to him and others who have asked similar questions, it looks easy. It's not easy. From a physical perspective, the setup is trivial. Like every physics lab in the world has a double set system for demonstration. The psychological side is very, very difficult. It's difficult because of the nature of the task. It's difficult because some people have a facility to be able to do this kind of concentration. Most don't. And it's also difficult because of other strange things that have been found in cyber research over the years. And that typically the first couple of times you do something, it works fabulously well. It looks easy. So you have visions of the Nobel Prize dancing in your head because it's like <laughs> everything is just so easy. It's never easy because the moment you get the internal sense that I, that I know what's happening, that gets in the way. It gets in the way from the experimenter's point of view and the, and the experimental participant's point of view. And then you have to work through that. You have to work through this, I don't know if it's ego or anxiety or something that gets in the way and eventually you'll be able to get it back. But it takes a lot of work. And it's, you see this in virtually every field. Like the first time I played golf, I was thinking, what's the big deal with this? You hit it and then it goes and it goes in. And I remember the other people I was, when I was playing golf, they're saying, Are you sure you never did this before? I said, no, no, I, I just watched how to do it and had Tiger Woods in mind. And then I did it. <laughs> well, of course, I was never able to do it the same way again, because I was, among other things, I was being, I was given feedback saying, this is incredible. And I was thought, oh, it's incredible. I'm really good at this. No, I, I really couldn't even do it anywhere near as good afterwards. So you, you yeah. find this in a lot of different domains. There's that Zen idea of Zen mind, beginner's mind. You just go out there all chill, and all of a sudden you're hitting it straight, and you're like, everything's good. That's right. And then you start thinking about it, and yeah. Yeah, to maintain that initial sense of novelty and innocence when you do something, it's very, very difficult. And you see it's a very strong effect that you see in these kinds of experiments as well. We refer to this as Zen mind, beginner's luck. <laughs> yeah, in our field, we call it the first timers effect. Yeah. It, it's very difficult to recapture that that first time. Uh, so actually, oh. we, we try to take advantage of this sometimes. We'll, we'll, we'll get people to do an experiment, and the very first time is a formal study because we're, we're going to want to take advantage of it. The problem is in science, you have to replicate things. So how do we replicate that first timer effect? You have to keep getting new people. Well, if you're unless you're extremely lucky, the second crop of people are going to hear from the first crop. And so they're no longer innocent. So I have a, a renewed appreciation for why in the magical lore that a sorcerer would never, ever reveal what he's doing. 
Oh, okay, that makes some sense. You keep it secret so that it can't be diluted by other people's knowledge and intentions. So I guess the Lord. So I get the feeling, though, in the study that was done in Brazil, it wasn't like there wasn't an effect. It could still show that the minds of the subjects were affecting. It just wasn't in a predictable way, and it just washed out the statistics then. That's and correct. It kind of undermined the hypothesis. So yes. it wasn't, there, yeah. there was an effect in each one of the studies, but it didn't always go in the same direction. So I guess the um, I, two small things. One would be, I think, Carl Jung's synchronicity, which he did write with Wolfgang Pauli, so another one of these physicist people. He was basically yeah. saying that human emotion makes these effects stronger and then kind of boredom will undermine it. And when people get bored of the procedure, the results go down. Is that sort of been your experience too? It is, yes. So boredom, anxiety, anything that pulls away from highly focused attention will squash it. And that's why in your book, Real Magic, you really recommend that people kind of calm their minds. It's a way to do this. If you can kind of get rid of those fluctuations in the mind. Right? Yeah, the, mag- the magic happens in the magical world in the state of gnosis, which a yogi would say is a state of samadhi. So to, to achieve samadhi is not trivial. It takes a long time to be able to quiet the mind down to the point where you're able to sustain that. And at least within the yogic tradition, you can learn how to do these magical powers after you can learn how to go into samadhi and stay there for as long as you wish, which is so, difficult. <laughs> so I guess least. Before we have to say goodbye to you, I suppose maybe the last quick thing to ask you about, and this is why I think the double slip thing is so fascinating, because it's such a typical experiment. If you could show that the human mind actually affects an experiment that's like so physics quintessential, I mean, that's that's a huge thing. But still in the same, as you point out in your book, you're still going to get resistance. It doesn't matter how many sigma you show, you know, you always have this problem of the culture just sort of has this resistance. So obviously you've been dealing with this throughout your career, but I mean, how do you see, how do you see this going with all of your experience? Do you think there'll be a point where there'll be a breakthrough, and all of a sudden the broader culture of these things can become more accepted? How do you how do you how do you visualize that for yourself? <laughs> how do you try to precognose that or or uh, will that? How, how do you think about that, Doctor Raiden? Right. So part of the problem is that we are uh, we're taught that we're that the right worldview, or the, maybe the only worldview that makes any sense is materialism, that, that matter and energy are fundamental and consciousness is a secondary side effect, which might even be an illusion. So from that perspective, which all, virtually all fledgling scientists are taught that, but without being told that materialism is a set of assumptions, they never have any reason to question it. And so I know people who are very, very smart, who would know their, their uh, physics or their psychology or neuroscience completely cold, uh, who absolutely cannot accept the idea that they're psychic phenomena and, and completely independent of the nature of the data. And so I, I have some sympathy for that because I remember very clearly when, after I got my master's in electrical engineering, that you get a very strong sense like they do in Silicon Valley that you can make a machine like data from Star Trek who is conscious because all you need is a, 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 a sufficiently complicated system that has feedback in it, and you can make you can make a brain essentially. So, so I understand that. I remember that that feeling of oh, I can do it. Like I I understand how to do it. The problem is, as philosophers have pointed out, that the the be- most the best mechanical things that we have out there now 
we can't account for subjectivity. We can account for the behavior perhaps, but the idea that there, that a conscious system would have internal experience, subjective experience, like the, uh, the taste of a lemon, not the chemical analysis of a lemon, but the actual taste, what does it taste like? That is something that nobody knows how to solve. So that we're talking about the nature of consciousness itself. So when you talk to most physicists, they don't wanna have anything to do with consciousness. It's like, you can't nail it down. You can't, you can't see it under a microscope. You can't do anything with it. And so from their perspective, the only way of understanding experiments that I've done or other colleagues have done with double slits or lots of other kinds of targets too, it can only be two things. It's either fraud or it's flaws because it's impossible by fiat. That's very, very difficult to get beyond that. And, and so we thought of, of various methods. You need to get better data. You need to get more replications, create applications. But another approach to, is to simply remind people that well, materialism is an extremely powerful way of thinking about the world. Like uh, the modern world rests upon materialism as, as a doctrine. There are other ones too. So as I, I point out in, in my book, Real Magic, if you look at the esoteric traditions where magical practices occur uh, and where they came from, it has a, a very different kind of worldview in which consciousness is fundamental. And so you don't have to worry about where it came from. It simply was here before the physical world. And the moment that you entertain that possibility, then all of the magical practices and things like affirmation and psychic phenomena and all that stuff is actually pretty easy to understand because all of it is dependent on the idea that consciousness is primary over the physical world. That's, that's why it all works. So, so, so part of the, the notion then is you can't get rid of materialism. It's too good. And there's no reason to get rid of it. You don't have to throw away any textbooks. You don't have to do any of that. All you do is see materialism as a special case that applies to certain aspects of the, of the physical world. But the physical world is not everything there is. We have these subjective worlds and we have to account for them in some way in order to have any sense that there's, you're even close to a theory of everything. So from a physics perspective, the theory of everything will reduce everything to matter and energy. That doesn't seem to be possible. And so I'm optimistic about this because a growing number of scientists in many fields now are beginning to entertain uh, terms like uh, panpsychism and like neutral monism and maybe even idealism. And most today probably don't remember that the founders of quantum mechanics were idealists. You look at what they've actually said, people like, like uh, Max Planck who came up with the idea of the quantum, he said, Consciousness is fundamental. You can't get beyond that. And almost all of the other founders said the same thing. So they were perfectly fine physicists, came up with a much better description of a uh, physical world, and yet their underlying philosophy assumed that consciousness was in fact fundamental. So you, you can be a scientist and also agree with idealism, in which case you see materialism as a subset. So physics, this should not be surprising. We have at least three major subsets within physics. Classical mechanics is more or less what we see in the everyday world. Relativity is the world of the very fast and very large. Quantum mechanics is the world of the very cold and the very small in, in just general terms. So we don't have any problem. We're not saying that classical mechanics is wrong. It's a special case that works in a certain domain. 
same with relativity, same with quantum mechanics, same with whatever comes next, and there will be lots of things that come next, uh, in which case the, the image that I have then is uh, we, we have some picture, a Venn diagram of a big circle that contains everything really. Materialism is the little bubble inside. It pertains to some things. Uh, and, and slightly bigger bubble is consciousness which contains materialism. And there's stuff beyond that that we don't even have names for yet. So it's unfortunate that most people are trained as engineers and scientists are not required to have a course in the philosophy of science. And they should also be required to have a course in the sociology of science where they learn that you can talk about some things and you can't talk about other things. Well, I think the reason why that's not required in many cases is because it takes a lifetime to become a specialist in a scientific discipline today. There's just too much to learn, but it also gives rise to problems where, where phenomena where we have very high confidence that they're real are just ignored or worse, there's prejudice against it and claim that it can't exist when it clearly does. So, so that's my spiel on that topic. <laughs> Well, I have to say, Dr. Radin, I think uh, for those of us who really appreciate your work and you're willing to go throughout your professional life and butt heads against what essentially is kind of like a paradigmic taboo. It's like a Thomas Kuhn, you know, paradigm shift taboo that you're willing to like take on. And, uh, you know, I think I, I found your work to be really inspiring and know Daniel has. So we are uh, yeah. just really grateful for you willing to be able to spend your professional life really fighting these battles. Yeah. So Sometimes I'm asked by students, uh, how can I get into that field? You know, how, do, how would I do what you do? And so I, I give them advice about what kinds of, of topics to learn and so on. But I also then say that if you're not comfortable fighting ideological fights, like, you, you know, you, you need to be iconoclastic enough to say, oh, this, this, is, this fight is fun. I mean, it's, some of it's frustrating, but it's also... It's intellectually stimulating to, to be able to uh, fight for the reality of certain kinds of ideas. And so somehow I gravitate towards that. So for me, this is, if this were a struggle, I wouldn't be doing it. You'd, be, you'd have to be a masochist to do that. <laughs> and I'm not a masochist, so I, I see it as uh, a, a challenge, which most of the time is fun, and sometimes it's not so much fun. Uh, but on, on the whole, uh, fighting for the reality of reality, which is what it's about, really, uh, that's, that makes life worthwhile. Yeah, there really is a, a glee that comes through in your work, because you have a good sense of humor, obviously, too. And you present, you know, kind of your, your fights in these very uh, interesting and amusing ways. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, you, you have to have a sense of cosmic humor, otherwise, you, you just wouldn't do anything. Yeah, I've already bought several copies of Real Magic for people. Just you have to read this because it's just so interesting. And also it's just such a fascinating, it's interesting as a subject matter. It's also interesting how you kind of, you know, had to pursue this for your life. And, uh, and uh, you know, with, with deep, deep respect, you know, we appreciate it. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Thank so you for much. Thanks for tuning in to today's episode with Dean Radin, PhD. We wanted to again thank him for sharing his time with us. We definitely appreciate it. For Eric, this is Daniel. We'll catch you in the next one. Peace. I want you to get together. I want you to get together. Get together one time.